Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. All right, this is On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan. I am here with Danny Moses. Guy Adami is not here this week. We were all down in Miami yesterday, Wednesday, at iConnections Digital Assets Forum, we did a live market call. That was fun, wasn't it, Danny? I didn't make it back, and Danny didn't make it back because all these storms on the East Coast here. But Carter Braxton Worth, you know him, you love him from CNBC's Fast Money Options Action and of Worth Charting, is stepping in. What's up, Carter? Man, how are you? It's all good. Where's Guy stranded? Midair, we think. But let me tell you, what a great replacement. And I know not everyone can see you, but you got the Benjamin Franklin, which just is your theme, as everyone knows, that you signed the Magna Carta or Declaration of Independence or something. But you, Carter Braxton Worth III. And for those out there that don't know, Carter and I worked together at a time. And then when I uh, moved to the buy side with Porter and Vinny and Steve, by far our favorite, not just technical analyst, but analyst to be with. Always fun to be around. And got to tell you, you're right more than you're wrong. Once I got used to this 150-day crap from 200. Yeah, then you're like, well, that's something to it. Something to it. Something new and different. So we're going to stream you in today. So welcome aboard, buddy. Not infallible, but hey, <laughs> thanks, guys. Just so you know, Guy Adami is fit to be tied right now. He left Miami like 24 hours ago. He got stuck in Norfolk, Virginia overnight. Then the plane he finally got on has just been delayed. So Carter, thank you for stepping in. Let's do it, guys. There's a lot going on this week, and the market's been rallying for what seems like a couple weeks. We've had the S&P at its lows last month was down 20% or so. The NASDAQ was down about 30% right now. We have an S&P that's down 12.5%, and a NASDAQ that's down about 21.5%. Days like today, Thursday, we're an hour into the close. They're just squeezy. The three of us have been around. We've been in these sorts of markets. I think all of us agree that we're not out of the woods just yet. We probably see lower lows but there's a lot of data, economic and the like, that's going to dictate how the economy slows and how protracted of a slowdown we have if we hit a recession, that sort of thing. Let's hit something, though, that we've been talking about. Carter, you and I have been talking about it on Market Call. Danny, you guy and I have been talking about it on the tape here. We've been talking about the fact that when you think about PE, you think about valuation of stocks, well, the price has come in this year, but the E hasn't. And we've been harping on this for a month, that consensus estimates for S&P earnings up 10% 
10% year over year for this year did not seem particularly likely given the headwinds to growth that we have globally here specifically, the recent rate rise. We got a shooting war in Europe. China just reopened after two months of being locked down. The dollar strength, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So this morning we wake up and we have Microsoft that guides down their fiscal fourth quarter. So they're two months into that fiscal fourth quarter. It was not a particularly big guide lower, guys. I mean, the stock was down 4% on the opening. It's up or about unchanged-ish right now. And Danny, you and I were just talking about it offline a little bit. They didn't need to pre-announce this quarter. Why do you think they pre-announced this quarter here? Because they did it in a pretty decent environment, if you think about it. Just to put it in context, they guided their revenues to between $51.94 billion and $52.74 billion. That actually was within the range, so to speak. That was from 52.4 to 53.2. And the earnings midpoint, I think, was from 232 to 228. So you're right, not a big deal with a full month to go. With the dollar actually, to your point, weakening a little bit since it had strengthened. So maybe they're scared of what people saw. I think Walmart, not to compare those two companies, they do something completely different. But the fact that they didn't pre-announce and they were caught off guard, their stock was absolutely hammered. It was down 20% over the course of a couple of days for Walmart. And so maybe they saw that. They're just trying to maintain some type of credibility or maybe something else is coming in the quarter, a little bit of a slowdown. That was kind of my take. Listen, they blamed it on the strength of the dollar. The dollars come in. You made a bearish call a couple of weeks ago on the Dixie, the US dollar index, which is about 50% euro. It was consolidating in March at about like 98 bucks, which was very near what 52 week highs and had this parabolic move to 105. Well, here it is. It's come back a lot. I do think it's interesting that it's at one month lows just below 102 and the company is blaming this guide lower on FX. I'm just curious, what's your take on the dollar and are we going to see this a lot more over the next month? Before that, I mean, I think the price action in Microsoft is so similar to what we've seen recently in a lot of companies. Think about Gap stores. So what Microsoft said was eh, a little bit of this, a little bit lighter currency. Think about something like Gap. And you could say, what does Gap have to do with Microsoft? Here's what it has to do with it. Gap was supposed to earn $1.85 to 220 or something. Then they changed their mind. From management, one day later, we think it'll be 30 to 60 cents. And the stock closed up. And so did Dix and so did other. The fact that Microsoft's shaking it off, the fact that NVIDIA shook it off, it just speaks to the fact that we'd come down a long way, NASDAQ 100 down 30%, Russell down 30 and that independent whether you're bearish or bullish, you get sequencing. That uptrends have countertrends, like the dollar countertrend now, and downtrends have countertrend rallies. And this is a countertrend rally. It just looks as though it's got legs for the market overall. I would just add, I think any person out there that's looking for an excuse to buy Microsoft just got this out of the way. Listen, it's covered by 60 analysts. I mean, however many analysts there are in the world, that's how many cover Microsoft. So there's no angle here that people have that they can, but what people already had in their models, the point they did have the dollar impact. They knew that it was going to impact. If this is the worst thing, that's an all clear because that should be priced in. I really think this is probably the tip of the iceberg here. I think Microsoft is probably taking one for the team and getting it out of the way for other very large multinationals to be able to do it. But I also think that, again, this is their fiscal Q4. So when they report in late July, not only are they going to guide for Q1, but they're probably going to guide for the full fiscal year. And if they think that they're likely going to have to guide lower for the current quarter, which would mean the year would probably go below consensus. It makes sense to get this information out little by little rather than hitting it all at once. Because again, this is not the sort of range of a miss that you would need to pre-announce. And Danny, to your point about how many analysts cover this stock, I'm looking at facts set here. It says 52. 
48 rated a buy, four hold, no sell. And the other point I just say about Microsoft is we were talking about the P, the prices come down in a lot of stocks. The E has not come down yet. And this could be the start of that. But Microsoft still trades it 28 times earnings this year and about 25 times next. So to me, in a market where you've seen all sorts of companies in all sorts of industries get the snot knocked out of them for having a valuation that sticks out like a sore thumb versus a forward PE of the S&P now about 17. This one looks like it's got some more room to go. I think investors are still willing to pay a premium just for certainty and consistency in some form for quality, I should say. So that's what the story of this market has been. The big quality names have yet to fully capitulate. Will that happen? I don't know. But that's the key I think to the market retesting its lows and moving lower may not happen. But to your point, Dan, if that realization does occur and people just shift the multiples they're using, the market's going to go a lot lower from here. Hey, Carter, there's a couple names this week that it reported Salesforce, which was, I think, at its lows down about 50% from its highs last year. MongoDB, much smaller name, but trades at a fat multiple to sales. That stock is raging today, up nearly 18%. Salesforce was up about 12% yesterday, up about 70% today. Now, those bounces... They kind of look like blips on the chart here, but they're pretty significant. Talk to us a little bit about that. And is this just the counter trend sort of stuff? No one left to sell down 50%? Yeah. I mean, so they're huge moves, right? Datadog's up 16%. And if you look at the IGV, which obviously has Apple and Microsoft in it and so forth, but it's a more weighted to other names, that is up big today. The implications are just as it would be for the behavior in Gap or Dix or NVIDIA is that bearishness had reached a certain level that the bounces are real. They are blips on the chart. And when you drop 70, 80%, like a Peloton or Zoom, you can always have blips and think Enron had, I remember counting, I thought it was nine, I'd have to go back, nine counter trend moves on the way to zero, of course, of 20 to 30%. So not to say that these stocks have to go to zero or are going to zero, but sequencing, that's the point of an uptrend or downtrend. You don't go up or down without having counter trend moves. And so these counter trends are real. And how long they last, always hard to know. But there is momentum here, and I think they carry further. Sorry, guys. Holy shit. Whoa, there he is. Look at that angry face. He's actually dressed exactly the same as the last time I saw him 24 hours ago. That's true. So, guy, you're coming in. We're taping right here, buddy. Sorry. What do you apologize? Was it Delta? I've had so many bad Delta. Oh, my God. It was United. It literally started yesterday at 5 o'clock in the morning when the car didn't show up. Literally one thing after another. All right. Well, you're here, Guy Dami, and you are on the tape. You see CBW here? He tapped in here. We just did a nice little talk on tech on the Microsoft pre-announcement. We want to get to, and, and, and we think you're fired up right now, so we want to get you coming in hot right here. So we want to get to this Jamie Dimon speaking at Bernstein Research. Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank America, clap back a little bit, but what does that mean, clap back? There's a salve for that, by the way, if he has a problem. Danny, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. It's on the Twitter. I thought this was interesting here. So Diamond said he warned of a coming storm caused by a combination of, you ready for this, unprecedented factors, fiscal stimulus during the pandemic, Federal Reserve policy, and the war in Ukraine. He said it's a hurricane right now. It's kind of sunny. Things are doing fine. Everyone thinks the Fed can handle this. The hurricane is right out there down the road coming our way. We just don't know if it's a minor one or a superstorm. Sandy, Brian Moynihan says, we're in North Carolina. 
You've got hurricanes that come every year. He doesn't seem too worried. That's a clapback guy. I mean, give it to us here, man, because Jamie Dimon, when they reported their Q1 results in April, he didn't sound this concerned. Is he another one of these CEOs who's kind of seen some behavior in their business in a short period of time and starting to change his tune a little bit, getting investors ready? Think about for him to say that, what he sees. And Danny, you know better than I do. Didn't JP Morgan take like an $8 billion loan loss reserve or something like that? So they're back in that game as well. And if I'm mistaken, please at me on Twitter because people do that anyway. They clearly see something. And Brian Moynihan can say whatever he wants and everything's great. And he can look through his rose-colored glasses. But when somebody like Jamie Dimon, the gravitas that he has, makes statements like that, I brought it up a couple times over the last few days, the market should listen. Now, I will tell you clearly, the market doesn't seem to care for whatever reason. But the storm clouds are out there. And, you know, Moynihan is cute and says we have hurricanes all the time here in North Carolina. Good for him. I think Jamie Dimon is speaking to a much bigger issue. And again, it comes down to the fact that this Fed, for the first time in almost 12 years, they're trying to do the proper thing. They're trying to do the responsible thing. And there's going to be pain along the way. That's just part of the process. Again, better late than never, Danny Moses, but here we are now. So when Jamie Dimon says things like that, I think we should all listen. Yeah, listen, shout out to our boy Dwight Collins, who's, I think, running those meetings for that conference. I want to get his take. That would be Porter's brother, by the way. JP Morgan's had a nice bounce here. I think it's 15 17% off the lows. We were talking about the name a couple weeks ago. I think he's warning the Fed, don't go too far. We've talked about this before. The Fed's made comments, Pal has, that he thinks quantitative tightening is the equivalent to a quarter point of the Fed rate hiking. I think that's completely wrong. And I think Diamond's sending that signal. He also talks about how oil is going up. He believes can go to 150 to 175 because we're not doing enough to take action in Europe. So the two things that Jamie Diamond obviously sees on an ongoing basis, he talks to his retail loan officers, oil's having an impact on the consumer. He's seeing what's happening in mortgage rates. He's seeing a slowdown in mortgage originations. He's seeing credit card losses probably go up a little bit. Nothing to worry about as far as his company, but he's seeing it. And Moynihan, if I had to pick one of those two guys to go on a quiz show with, it would certainly be Jamie Dimon. In my opinion, Moynihan did admit, though, in his comments, said, yeah, we see credit costs continue to increase. Again, nothing alarming, but I think Diamond was basically telling the Fed to take it easy. That was my take. Here's my take. I think that at the end of the day, this is just a guy who puts his pants on in the morning like everybody else. While he has better data than a lot of people, he is not bigger than the greatest thing of all, which is the collective wisdom. The market is down. The S&P is down 20%. NASDAQ's down 30%. Russell's down 30%. And he's now seeing, you can look at what he was saying in January, February. He said there was no problem. And so it's not that he's not right to be aware of it now and to be calling it out, but the market is ahead of that. And in fact, guess what? The time when someone like that says it and he's saying it and one in, market's bouncing now. That's just the sequence of it. Who's in the crowd? There are 20 Jamie Diamonds. I don't disregard what he's saying and I don't think he's wrong. He's got the data, but the market sniffs this out way in advance. Yeah, listen, I agree with that, Carter. No question about it. And last week when Danny and I did the podcast, we talked about being more constructive than we have been recently. And I know, Carter, you have been as well in terms of the technical work that you've done suggested the S&P probably has another 5 6% to the upside. And you've been saying that pretty consistently over the last week. That's been spot on. And oh, by the way, it was Dan Nathan that dipped his toe in the market, basically right around the lows we made a week and a half or so ago. So we're not always dour. I guess my point is you're spot on with Jamie Dimon. He's just like the rest of us. But for him to make comments like that, 
You have to wonder what's around it. And I'm not suggesting you're saying this glib. He wouldn't come at me because think you have to make that decision. I'm going to actually go out and say these things. These are inflammatory. These are cautionary. I'm giving a warning and you wouldn't do that casually. So to get to the point where he actually utters those words, yes, it does mean that what he's seeing is not good. Yeah, well, as we're recording this right now, Thursday into the close, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, largest asset manager in the world, he's making comments that actually, in a different way, I think echo some of the things that Jamie Dimon's saying. He said the Fed does not have the tools to deal with inflation now, says policy supply shocks are reason for economic turmoil. We'll be living with more uncertainty. Economy may be muddling around for next year or two, says inflation problems is policy related. Inflationary pressures come from consumer-based economy. There's enough little warnings out there this week in the face of this rally. I think pieced together as a bit of a mosaic is kind of interesting. Ready for this? Jan 10. Jamie Dimon says the U.S. is headed for the best economic growth in decades. The CEO, Chairman Jay, said his confidence stems from the robust balance sheet of the American consumer. Diamond says that the underlying economy looks strong and stock market investors, we are entitled to change our mind, but the market's way ahead of any man or any single woman. Yeah, and I'll just make a comment on Larry Fink at BlackRock, and I think Guy would agree. Biggest beneficiary of the Fed's policy over the last 13 years has been Larry Fink. For God's sakes, he's been the buyer, the conduit for the government, for the Fed and the Treasury to buy bonds. This has been crazy. So now not only is he begging the Fed to stop what they're doing, he's now backing off from his ESG part where he's saying he thinks energy companies are doing enough to address their own situations to improve climate. That's fine. He's grasping right now. And I could go on and on on BlackRock and Larry Fink, but he's begging the Fed as well. And I think Diamond also. Danny, you mentioned the Fed. Fed Vice Chair Lael Brainerd. Guy, this one's for you, buddy. And you're already fired up. So you're coming in hot on this. She was on CNBC this morning. She said she doesn't see the central bank taking a break anytime soon from its rate hiking cycle. We've still got a lot of work to do to get inflation down to our 2% target. What's your take here, buddy? I am exercised. I saw those comments and I saw the knee-jerk reaction in the market and immediately went down, I think, 25, 30 handles or so in the S&P 500, only to subsequently rally the rest of the day. I think Carter is spot on in terms of his assessment. The market's ahead of all this without question. And I think Danny was spot on last week to say, you know what, I'm seeing some constructive things. But I'll say this, it doesn't mean the worst is over, in my opinion. I think, again, and just what we're seeing over the last week or so is these mind-numbing rallies in a bear market. And I think the market doesn't fully comprehend what it means for the Fed to try to reduce their balance sheet along with raising rates in an environment where inflation is sticky as hell. And I think crude oil is going to continue to go higher while the data continues to get worse. I mean, we saw some of these economic data over the last week and a half or so that's been miserable. So Danny Moses, I'll say it for you. That, my friends, is a bit of a witch's brew. Yeah. So it feels like every time the market's really strong or has a strong couple days in this miss, you get a Fed governor or somebody coming out and just reinforcing that the 50s coming, 50s coming, we're not going to stop. Lel Brainerd went as far to actually call out Bostic from the Atlanta Fed to say, I don't know what he's talking about, but we haven't made a decision to even slow down. And then obviously the market sold off and then regained its footing. Fed fund futures have been very, very volatile. I don't know if people are looking at that or not. I know we've talked about them in the past. So as of a week ago, it would, the consensus was the Fed would go to 3%. So that's 275 basis points to 300 basis points, roughly. So you think about it as 11 to 12 rate hikes. It quickly backed off to two and a half and then quickly shot back again. Again, I don't know how 
overly liquid those markets are, but that's just the uncertainty that we're dealing with. And why would the Fed stop and pause? Would it be because the economy is slowing so much? And to Dan's point he made earlier about the E in some of these companies, where do things meet in the middle? What is going to be that moment? We have a jobs number tomorrow. Everyone's so obsessed with I haven't even heard people preview it or talk about what this jobs number may be. I don't even know what the jobs number forecast is. How about that? But if it beats it, I can make a bull or bear argument. And if it's worse, I can make a bull or bear argument. So I think Guy, to your point, people want to be constructive and look, they'll plug any number that fits their thesis and how that works for it. So obviously we're going 50 basis points here in a couple of weeks. And if we don't go 50 in July, something happened. And what was it would be what I would say. The one thing we know is the move in rates stopped at the 2018 high, at the two year, at the five year and the 10 year, which is therefore an inconvenient fact for those making the case for higher rates in that the sequence from 1979 is intact. Every rally, such as the one we've had here, move up in rates, has stopped and made a lower high. And this one did too. So the peak in 2018 was basically 325. And we couldn't quite get there this time around. We got to what, 320, 321, and we backed away. Same thing, other points in the yield curve. And I just think it's already telling us that things are slowing down. And that we aren't going to four and five and probably not even three and a half. In terms of the 10-year, I totally agree with you. I mean, that level that it stopped at, I think it was 3.2%-ish. Let's just call it that. And then the subsequent sell-off is really interesting. I'll say this. We saw twos, tens go negative. We saw twos, tens subsequently go to about 45 basis points. We've seen five tens go to parity effectively. Now we're seeing, I think, twos, tens, in my opinion, what's going to happen here. I think you're going to start to see it flatten out again and potentially go negative. Why? To your point exactly, Carter, the data continues to get worse. Economic data gets worse. It means yields go lower. I think yields in 10 years go lower, but I think two years is going to stay sticky as hell. The higher crude goes, I think the more two years is going to be sticky to higher from here. And I don't think that's particularly constructive for the market, Danny Moses. You took the words out of my mouth. I was actually going to say, if we see an inversion happen again, meaning two-year yields move higher than 10-year yields, that's it. The party's over because if that happens after all of this has occurred and what these rates are trying to portend and what they're telling us, that to me tells you that we're going into not just a recession, but a stagflationary environment. So that to me is the scariest moment. Listening to Mike Wilson last week on the pod, he made the case to us that in 2008, once we already knew we were in a little bit of a dicey situation as it relates to Bear Stearns going under and the systemic risk that we had and the housing market turning, he brought up the fact that crude oil had that parabolic move to 150. And that basically ensured that we were going to have a consumer recession. So to your guys' point, we get that yield curve inversion. Even if we have yields come in, also not go meaningfully higher despite what the Fed is doing on the short end, just look at your Twitter every day. Do you see all these people sending pictures of the price of gas? Do you think that doesn't have a psychological impact on consumers in general? And I think that's what Brian Cornell from Target was talking about in a way to see that sort of shift because we've seen gas go from 
four to five to six, some places $8. There's no way into the big driving season that that's not going to have a big effect here. Also, remember during the post-financial crisis, it wasn't just about a recession. It was the focus on whether we're going to have a double dip recession. You remember the absolute back and forth after the initial recession? So I know, Guy, you talked about this a lot. Is the R word, is it such a horrible thing? Is it a four-letter word? What does it actually mean? We won't know until after the fact anyway. But I think consumer behavior likely changes, and that's the thing that keeps us lower for longer. You know what stopped that double dip from happening? The Fed printing. Print, print, print. And that's not happening anymore. You know why they're in trouble? If they were to do something reverse course, you know what's going to happen to oil? Obviously, it does not help. So again, is it a demand problem or is it a supply problem? And if it becomes a demand problem, we got a real problem. Well, when we come back, we're going to look at crude oil because CBW's done some extensive work there. We'll hear his thoughts. I know I have thoughts as well. Apparently, Sheryl Sandberg leaned in. Now she's bowing out, as they say. And oh, by the way, Danny Moses, because he doesn't do it all the time anyway, he's going to throw a rod at you folks right after this. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. So earlier this week, OPEC, which is a cartel, you know, you hear the word cartel, you immediately think it's like nefarious people. And quite frankly, typically when you hear cartel, they are nefarious groups. With that said, they basically said they're going to increase production, good for them, 648,000 barrels per day in July and August. Now, that obviously got the market a little lower. Then crude came raging back. Now it's sort of vacillating here. We'll see. I'm still of the belief, and we've done a decent job here on the tape, We talked about that blow-off top at 130 back in March. That pulled back. The pullback was larger than I thought it would be, but made sense in terms of the levels. Carter will speak to that. But this next leg higher has been in the face of China zero COVID and obviously softer economic results that we've been talking about for the last half hour, if not the last week or so. That, to me, suggests the crude wants to go higher here. Carter, what does your work suggest? It gets down to two things. We know crude's well bid, and we know every possible thing from the COVID lockdown ending in China to the summer driving season. Here's the thing that I'm struggling with. Crude oil went from $9 a barrel to 130 in six sessions. So think about that. That was a Friday. It was February 25th. 
And by Monday, March 7th, just six sessions later, 90 to 130. Now, we're sitting here at 115, 117, three, four months later. The point is markets in their infinite wisdom, priced energy, that wasn't just, wow, he's got a few kilometers over the border. They were pricing in Europe will stop buying 90% of Russian oil. That is just out in the news two days ago, that this will be a long and protracted war, meaning we have yet to take out that high. And I just don't think that we will. My hunch is that that, not to say took care of it, but that crude oil by going from 90 to 140, Brent went from 100 to 140, that it was all priced in to some extent. And now we're getting the news is coming out. Oh, you've got to pay me in rubles, says the dictator. Or, oh, Gazprom, we're cutting you off or we're shutting down this utility. But that was all figured out. My hunch is oil's, okay, maybe works higher, but I think the highs are in. That's my thought. That's going to be interesting to see. I think my bias here is higher. My bias for energy stocks is higher. I still think that energy market has not gotten the memo from the Federal Reserve and what they're attempting to do. And again, they can talk all they want. They can talk things down and the data can continue to come out soft. But that commodity crude oil right now is sticky as hell. And I think that's going to be problematic as we get deeper in the summer. But that's just me. Dan, Nathan, this is your ballywick because I know you love all these tech companies and stuff and Facebook being at the top of that hill. And listen, Sheryl Sandberg did an amazing job during her tenure there without question. But the timing of her departure is odd. It comes in the wake of a lot of these, I guess, names in the metaverse being taken out to the woodshed. And it comes on the heels of Facebook announcing they're changing their name to Meta. So maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist. No, not maybe. I certainly am. The initial reaction in the stock was lower, subsequently bounced. What does this mean, if anything? I think your point is that this company is going in a very different direction. When Cheryl was brought in, she was meant to be the adult in the room. And it's funny when you talk about her tenure guy, she's been very quiet since the 2016 election. She took a lot of heat. And I always found it really interesting that she was really tight with Kara Swisher, who is obviously the alpha tech reporter. They were, I think, personal friends. She used to come on Kara's podcast. And after Kara's 2016 criticism of what Facebook, I guess, didn't do, allowing their platform to be weaponized by the Russians to interfere with our election. You notice that she just has not been a very public person, and she has not been sitting down with people like Kara and doing long-form interviews. And I think her end game was always to go work in the Hillary Clinton White House, and that obviously didn't happen. So now you have this pivot with the company. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think Facebook will likely be able to track talent to help Mark navigate this transition towards the metaverse. But I do think it's also interesting, the timing. Remember a few weeks ago, there was an internal Facebook review that she had tried to suppress a story about her then boyfriend, Bobby Kotick, who was the CEO of Activision. And I guess the assertion was that she used her power to deal with some of the media companies that are their counterparties to suppress the story. And I think I said at the time, whether it was on this pod or on Fast Money, I was like, well, she's gone. So the timing is not that curious to me. And they're going to need a whole new group of metaverse web three forward leaders to really nail this pivot from the company. So you can hear it in my voice. I'm a little tired, but I've been on this whirlwind tour from Miami, Florida. That's neither here nor there. But I will tell you, there was a really good vibe down there at this crypto digital asset conference that the three of us were at. Care to talk about this? Because apparently my man Porter, who's a badass, I love Porter Collins. He's just ripped. He's smart. He's a rower. But he used to crush the guys that created this crypto Gemini. I think those are the Winklevi pair. No? Yeah. You were just talking about 
Meta or Facebook, whatever it's called. And let's not forget the Winklevi helped create it somehow. Remember, they got the big settlement. Anyway, I just find it funny that they're calling this a crypto winter. But the quote, so for those people out there, they run a company, Gemini. It's a trading platform for crypto, et cetera, marketplace. And they blamed it, or they said it was exacerbated by current macro environment and geopolitical turmoil. That was the whole freaking thesis of crypto. That's why it's supposed to work. And yet they're laying 100 people off out of 1,000 because of it. I think their last round, speaking of potential markdowns in private equity markets, was $7.1 billion. And so who knows what that worked. But let me move that little rod over there because onto something else, which is another NFT marketplace company. You thought they sold video games? No, they're launching. They reiterated their desire to launch an NFT marketplace by the end of the second quarter. And so GameStop reported they lost only $160 million this quarter. That's not bad. And let me just say this. They were able to raise in the last 12, 18 months, $1.68 billion. Well, there's a billion dollars left now on the balance sheet. Yeah, they paid down some debt and did. But again, when I see stocks act like this, I previewed it last week. Short interest is 92%. It took out certain funds, Dan, which I know we can talk about that are out there. But again, I just tie those two together. And again, I want to be constructive on the market. But when I see shit like this start happening, I'm not there yet. It's funny that I forgot that GameStop had that big move into NFTs trying to rebrand the story or kind of merge two memes together, the stock meme and the crypto meme. It was also interesting Did you see the SEC brought charges against an employee of OpenSea, which is the largest NFT exchange for insider trading. So we haven't seen that before. I'll just put a little bow on the iConnections conference. This was a meeting where they put together allocators and fund managers in the digital assets. And it's interesting, despite the price action in a lot of the underlying tokens, there was a lot of interest there. I mean, it was a really well-attended thing. People were pretty optimistic. There was obviously a lot of focus on the ecosystem. There's a lot of VC funds there. But Carter, I got to ask you, brother, you've been doing a lot of work on both Bitcoin and ETH. There's been a couple emails that I've gotten over the last two weeks from Worth Charting, and you can find Carter's work at worthcharting.com, where you've literally just drawn some very simple lines on both, and you've just said, bombs away. What's your quick take on the big ones here? Yeah, I mean, look, you find levels, we know that, and there's a lot of precision to both intermediate lows and the 52-week lows for Bitcoin centered on the 29, 30,000 level. And we've been here for over a month just sitting on it. And in principle, the longer you sit at a level without bouncing, the more it is that you're not able to bounce. Because the point of finding support is that you stop going down, one, but then you do the second act, you bounce. So it's at a level of support, but it's not doing the second half. It stopped going down, yes, from almost 70, but it's not bouncing. And Ethereum is the same thing. I just think it's got one good swoosh left. Plenty of instances where it's been down 60 70%, I think half a dozen. And so why can't this be yet another? That was my takeaway from this conference as well. Although crypto has been under pressure, clearly, we have bounced in Bitcoin from 25.5 up to 32. Now we're either side of 30. There still seems to be genuine excitement, especially when we saw all those folks around the conference. So take that for what it's worth, folks, out of the mouth of G Swizzle, who, by the way, is exhausted on this lovely Thursday afternoon. By the way, for some reason, the storms in the metropolitan area continue to come. Last night, which was Wednesday night, they closed all three airports as I was trying to watch my freaking Rangers kick the ass of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Game two tonight, Friday night, as you're listening to this, we're going to go up to zip going back to Florida. I got a really good feeling about this, Danny Moses. Before we get out of here, you're a bit of a hockey maven. Throw it at me, your sense, as we have Colorado Edmonton on one side of the ledger, New York Tampa Bay on the other. It's all about you, Sturkin. 
he can stop whoever comes out of that Colorado Edmonton game two tonight. That was eight six. Not so much of a hockey score as a combination of a baseball football type score. But listen, Rangers at home, that was must have been a great place to be last night in the garden. I hope they go. I hope they go to the finals. And I'm sure that the broadcast stations would love for them to go to the finals as well. I can't imagine them the money difference of having Tampa Bay or the Rangers in on it. So good on you and good for the Rangers. And I'm rooting for them, guy. Carter, thanks for joining us, by the way. For game one, I was in the middle seat of a plane that was grounded in Norfolk, Virginia, on the tarmac for two hours. But that's probably for another podcast because it doesn't matter now. CBW, thanks. Danny Moses, thank you. Dan Nathan, you're the man. Catch us next week on the tape, folks. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.